This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia.
Good evening, or good morning to you, wherever you are. Welcome to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. I'm your host every Sunday morning on Radio Orbit from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. And uh, we talk about lots of interesting things every week on this program. Tonight, I uh, have a little different uh, sort of show planned for you all. Not going to... Not going to talk to any particular guests this evening like we usually do. Typically on this program, we have an interview the uh, second half of the show or the last couple hours of the show, usually from 3 a.m. until 5 a.m. Last week, we talked to uh, Dr. Dennis McKenna, a friend of mine and an incredible uh, scientist and uh, researcher into the field of ethnobotany and ethnopharmacology and psychoactive plants and hallucinogenic drugs and compounds and uh, Dennis is actually in Peru right now on a little expedition looking for some more of these fun little uh, chemical agents that planet earth has provided for uh, for us to partake in and uh, we'll talk to Dennis when he gets back and find out what uh, what happened down there and how things went in South America. In the meantime, tonight, we're just going to do sort of an open lines deal. Just going to be me and you tonight. I'll be ranting and raving back here behind the microphone like I always do, playing a little music for you and uh, taking your phone calls as well tonight. So here's your chance to uh, give me a call, get on the air, and uh, let me know what's on your mind. So uh, the phone number here is uh, in the studio, actually, is area code 573 874 area code 573. If you're outside of the 573 area code, you can reach me at uh, 1-800-895-5676. That's 1-800-895-KOPN. And uh, if you'd like to call and get on the air and uh, talk a little bit about whatever's on your mind, you can call me at area code, uh, area code 573 443 8255. Okay, 443 8255. That's the number to call in a little bit later if you want to get on the air. We'll probably do that in about 20 minutes after I get through some business here, do space weather, and uh, talk about a few other things up front. Then we'll just uh, start playing some music, jamming out a little bit, and uh, talking a little bit and talking to you guys. So that's what's coming up. All right. Uh, Mike Hagan, Radio Orbit. You're listening to it. KOPN 89.5 FM, Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's more than radio. It's community radio. And it is KOPN, also the home for Radio Orbit. And uh, KOPN serves the Columbia area, including Ovas and Harrisburg and Marshall, Lindbergh, Roachport, Kingdom City, Shamrock. Murray, Huntsdale, lots of places around mid-Missouri, lots of towns that our signal reaches out to, and hopefully there's a few of you out there catching it tonight, listening to Radio Orbit. So, okay, one more time, Mike Hagen, and uh, we will be talking, um, uh, i got some great shows planned in the next few weeks, I'll talk about some upcoming guests here in a minute, and uh, I wanted to mention a couple of things real fast. Last night, uh, down at the Blue Note, North Mississippi All-Stars, if you were lucky enough to catch that show, Wow. And uh, wow, a couple weeks in a row now. We had Modesky, Martin, and Wood last Friday, and then uh, Mississippi uh, 
in the North Mississippi All-Stars last night, getting some incredible show, uh, shows that KOPN and the Blue Note are putting together for you all. So hopefully you're enjoying those and uh, getting a chance to get out and see some live music, which is so... Uh, so uh, alive in this town. Lots of great, great live music in this town. And uh, one of the reasons why I like living in the Columbia area here because we do have such a great live music scene. So anyway, uh, thanks to uh, all the people at KOPN and uh, Blue Note and Mojos who are setting all these things up. Uh, I really like to see the... Uh, uh, the increased activity in the music scene and the radio station and some of the venues in town getting involved in that stuff. So, anyway, great job for all that stuff. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> Upcoming guests, like I said tonight, we're not going to be talking to anybody in particular except for myself. Uh, in the next few weeks, we have Dr. Paul LaViolette. Dr. LaViolette is a Ph.D. astrophysicist that had some incredibly uh, advanced and interesting ideas about cosmology and the way the world works and the way the universe works and the laws of physics, which are being redefined every day as we speak, and stories in the news, uh, some that we'll cover tonight that uh, uh, just never cease to, uh, cease to amaze. Things are changing. <clears throat> Pardon me. Things are changing so quickly right now that uh, if you're really not up on any particular uh, topic or particular line of research, well, the odds are you're probably, um, your belief in that particular line of research is probably uh, fantastic. It's probably in the realm of fantasy at this point because we're learning so many things and so many uh, rules that we thought were applicable and uh, imitable have turned out to be much different than we ever uh, could have expected and it's interesting that we have this idea of science and uh, science has to be able to observe everything and to define everything and uh, in a very objective manner and in a linear manner and interestingly enough that linearity of science and the uh, technology that's developed is now opening doors to realms that it it's that science itself cannot explain and it must bow to these things science must bow to these things because it realizes the enormity of what its uh, its own laws are are showing it and uh, really interesting stuff happening all around in uh, all the different sciences. So, anyway, Dr. Paul LaViolette will be talking to us in about... I talked to him uh, on Thursday. I did the interview. I need to edit it and uh, uh, get it ready to put on the air. We talked for almost a, a full two hours, and we talked about a lot of interesting things. But uh, among other things, Dr. LaViolette is in the middle of a, uh, uh, a bit of a controversy right now with the National Science Foundation and the uh, physics archive that is uh, uh, run... Uh, by a gentleman at Cornell University and um, there is uh, quite frankly some censorship going on and uh, suppression of certain scientists work and we're going to be talking about all that stuff and uh, and I have um, a lot to say about uh, the suppression of science and advancements of science that are locked away and hidden in the closet for this reason or that reason and that's something that is uh, that our history is peppered with if you look at the history of planet earth and you look at the development of science you'll find that throughout history the revolutionaries the pioneers the groundbreakers the uh, 
the men and women who eventually get remembered as paradigm changers and uh, geniuses and these sorts of people. Well, in their own age, during their own time, they are typically considered heretics and lunatics and fringe elements and uh, uh, rogue scientists. And they're typically, again, during their own age, they're typically um, not treated very, very well or very kindly by their peers in the scientific community. They are typically laughed at and harassed and... Um, and in the past, we've seen that with such people as Galileo, Ptolemy, Copernicus, uh, even at later times with people like Nikola Tesla, Pasteur, Wilhelm Reich, many, many others. The list goes on and on. Um, and in uh, astronomy, Percival Lowell uh, and, uh, and others, even Albert Einstein to a certain extent, um, and many, many other uh, great scientists that we remember as great scientists were during their time considered complete lunatics. And uh, I'd just like to point out that today is no different than that. We, we, we tend to have this idea that, um, that our time and our culture and our society is enlightened and advanced and open-minded and free and democratic and all of these all of these. Uh, descriptive adjectives that make it sound like we've got everything all figured out. But to be frank, in very many areas of human endeavor, uh, research and science, good science, is suppressed and censored. And for the same reasons as it's always happened, is that there are guys and girls on the fringe. There are guys and girls that are pushing the envelope, that are asking questions about, uh, about things that don't make sense in the current uh, in the current systems theories and things like this. And, and when they buck the, buck the system and buck the trends, uh, a lot of times the people that are running that show aren't very appreciative of that type of activity. And uh, it's very easy to uh, see scientists get their work suppressed and censored. And it's happening right now. Dr. Paul LaViolette is a is a, a man who it's happening to, and we're going to talk with him about all that stuff, along with some of the reasons of why we think it's happening, because some of the, uh, some of the discoveries that Dr. Laviolette has made over the last 20 years, 20-some years, are, uh, they're extraordinary, simply extraordinary, and they pose questions that mainstream science and the establishment uh, institutionalized science is just not willing to answer right now and quite frankly cannot answer right now don't know how to answer the question so uh, so Dr. Paul LaViolette coming up in uh, just a couple of weeks William Line uh, we'll be talking to William Line about anti-gravity technology and UFOs and uh, some crossover uh, some crossover ideas between William Line and Dr. Paul LaViolette uh, certainly this idea that electricity and magnetism and gravity all have a uh, um, sort of a, uh, a trinity-type relationship. We know that electricity and magnetism are related, but it hasn't been uh, admitted or talked about for some time uh, about the relationship between electricity and gravity, so-called electrogravitics. 
and there is a relationship between electricity and gravity and uh, to put it simply when you apply an electromagnetic field to a gravitational field you can change the nature of the gravitational field and uh, we're going to be talking with William Lyon about that this technology goes back many 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 years uh, back to the late 1800s and early 1900s primarily the work of Nikola Tesla and guys like T.T. Brown and Victor Schauberger and lots of this technology was actually developed and uh, um, researched by the uh, German aerospace scientists that were working with the Nazis in the 1920s and 30s and 40s we're familiar with some of those names like Werner von Braun and uh, I mentioned Victor Schauberger and there are many others Kemmler <coughs> uh, but uh, much of this technology was uh, purchased or acquired in some way shape or form by the Germans in the early 1900s and then uh, developed through World War II uh, and many of the scientists that worked on those programs were imported into the United States of America after the world uh, after the World War II after the World War II so after the war and they came over uh, basically on a CIA a CIA project that was called Project Paperclip and Project Paperclip which I've talked about on this uh, on this program before um, when we talked to Dr. Colin Ross who's an expert in the um, investigation of mind control research by the U.S. government and agents of the U.S. government. But uh, Paperclip was a real interesting operation because it, uh, it spanned all of the different areas of science and there were scientists in Germany that were working on all manner of different things and quite frankly the U.S. government wanted to get their hands on as many of those scientists as possible to... Uh, to find out what the nature and what the uh, um, what the depth of their research was and had been, and many of those scientists were war criminals and were very nasty folks, and uh, many of them were um, given asylum here in the United States, given cush jobs with the government, working in intelligence agencies and with the scientific laboratories, which are in association with uh, many of the labs and universities around the country that do all this sort of research. In any case. Uh, the uh, anti-gravity technology and research continued in this country after World War II, after uh, uh, the Germans were recruited to help with the technology. And uh, in my opinion, the technology is uh, well-established. It's probably operational. There are things flying around our skies that are probably mistaken for UFOs and flying disks and these sorts of things that are probably man-made. And um, I think there's quite a bit of evidence to actually... Uh, to actually support that and we talk with William Lyon about that sort of stuff but uh, like I said Dr. Paul LaViolette is very interested in uh, anti-gravity research as well and the this relationship between electricity and gravity and uh, so uh, a lot of that stuff we'll be talking about and I'm I'm concentrating on that in the next couple of months uh, there's another interview actually that I'm doing with a gentleman named uh, whose name is Nick Cook and Nick Cook is the uh, editor of uh, one of the editors for the defense magazine, Jane's, uh, Jane's Defense Weekly. And uh, for those who are familiar with military technology and uh, armed forces technology, uh, you know that Jane's is the preeminent um, journal for that type of uh, 
research. So we'll be talking with Nick Cook, and it should be a fascinating interview because Nick Cook has written a book a couple of years ago now, which is called The Hunt for Zero Point. And uh, what he does is chronicle the history of anti-gravity technology and anti-gravity research uh, through the early 1900s, through the German era, uh, era that I mentioned, and then uh, onward uh, through the current uh, the current time period. And if there's a guy that's qualified to talk about it, it's Nick Cook. And we'll be talking with him hopefully live. He's in London, so we can do one of these shows where 3 o'clock in the morning here is 9 o'clock in the morning in London, and it makes a nice, uh, a nice comfortable morning, uh, Sunday morning interview for the folks over there. So anyway, Nick Cook coming up, defense editor uh, for, uh, for the magazine Jane's Defense Weekly, a fantastic uh, and uh, uh, the preeminent magazine when it comes to military technology and the reviews and uh, advancement of those technologies. So we'll be talking with, uh, with Nick Cook in a few weeks. Who else do we have coming up? Scott Stevens. He's a meteorologist, a weatherman from Seattle who notices some very interesting things in the weather patterns. Um, and uh, we'll be talking with him. I think we're going to have Kent Stedman on the air with Scott. Uh, Kent, of course, um, my uh, friend and guru from cyberspaceorbit.com, who is on the program once in a while. Kent actually peaked on the air for about 15, 20 minutes last week, giving us a little up, uh, update on uh, the solar activity, which I'll do again here in a few minutes. But uh, we'll be talking with Scott Stevens and Kent Stedman in a few weeks. That'll be a live show as well. Uh, Sean Montgomery is a gentleman who uh, is doing incredible work uh, in bringing back the almost lost story of Royal Raymond Rife, uh, a scientific genius and a medical genius who, again, was doing incredible things in the early 1900s through about 1930. And Royal Raymond Rife has an amazing story, and uh, we're going to tell that story with Sean Montgomery in a few weeks. So, uh, okay, lots of real cool things coming up, as always. And um, uh, thanks uh, to everybody for, uh, for listening. Thanks for the nice emails, as always. The Dennis McKenna uh, interview last week was very popular, and I appreciate all the, um, all the positive feedback that I got for that. And we'll be talking to Dennis, like I said, once he gets back from Peru, and we'll find out some more about some of these fantastic plants and uh, um, vines and leaves and roots and all these things that Dennis uh, researches and uh, we'll find out how his uh, expedition went down there in South America alright before that uh, I don't know what else I guess we'll play a little music now and then we'll come back and do space weather and uh, let's see what are we going to play I got a pretty cool CD here. This is from, there's a magazine, it's called Paste Magazine, and if you're a music fan, Paste is a, kind of an up-and-coming magazine, pretty cool stuff in Paste Magazine, sort of a, um, a magazine that has lots of cutting-edge uh, music and cutting-edge musician stories about them, but they include a CD with their magazine every week or every month, and uh, I've got the... Um, the most recent one. This is from October and November from Paste Magazine. And uh, this is a band that's called Fault Line. And they've got a little help here from uh, from the Flaming Licks. Uh, Flaming Licks. Not really. It's not the Flaming Licks. It's the Flaming Lips. And this is Fault Line on KOPN Radio Orbit. I'm Mike Hagan. Be back in a minute. We'll do space weather and uh, your phone calls. 
Get ready to give me a buzz. That number is 573-443-8255 if you want to get on the air a little bit later. And uh, we'll talk to you then. Again, Fault Line. The song is called The Colossal Gray Sunshine. KOPN Radio Orbit. KOPN Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan. And like I said, that was a song called uh, The Colossal Gray Sunshine. And that was from the latest Peace Magazine CD. Alright, let's do a little space weather here. Let you guys know what's going on up in the skies above your head with our our little uh, our own private star. Sitting out there about 93 million miles away from us, blasting us with light and heat and warmth every day. And in fact, today, uh, blasting us a little bit, a little bit stronger than usual. Solar wind up about 530 kilometers per second, which is a little bit higher than normal. That's because we're in the middle of a solar wind stream right now. Uh, that happens when the Earth passes through matter and energy that's blown out from the sun right now it's uh, 
energy that's being emitted from a coronal hole. We'll talk about coronal holes one of these days on the on the program. Describe what those are, but uh, uh, just a phenomenon that happens in the corona of the sun. And in any case, uh, when that happens, there's a little bit of uh, increased activity that we see, and that's what's happening right now, or what's happened in the last few days. And the Earth is experiencing that right now as it uh, flows through that that area of high energy and high activity. This could cause some uh, mild geomagnetic storms and uh, up there in Alaska and Canada. You can see some great auroras for sure now because of the uh, intense activity that we're seeing. Other than that, uh, we haven't seen a whole lot of things happening on the sun. Been pretty quiet. Had some small flares over the last couple of days, but nothing like we saw a couple of weeks ago. Of course, that's because those, uh, those sunspot areas that were generating those big flares that we were talking about last week and uh, the week before with Kent Stedman. Those sunspot areas uh, are on the opposite side of the sun right now, rotating around, and they'll be coming back into view in about 10 days. And uh, when that happens, there's a, a good chance that we'll see that activity increase again, and we'll have to see what those sunspot, what those, uh, what those areas have done, if they've increased in size or if they've gotten smaller. Uh, or what, but uh, certainly the potential for more more activity from those areas that are currently on the opposite side of the sun, not facing us. So, so that's why things are kind of mellow right now, even though there are a few, a uh, few small quote unquote small sunspots that are on the front side of the disk right now. I say quote unquote small because even though uh, they look small, they're as big as the Earth. Uh, if you actually measure the distance across them even uh, even tiny sunspots are, are the sizes of planets they just look small because the diameter and the size of the sun is just that big the sun is enormous and uh, it has uh, nearly a nearly a nearly a one million mile diameter it's uh, I don't know it's about 1.4 million kilometers the diameter of the sun, so that's pretty close to a million miles, but more like probably 900,000 miles or so, but anyway, uh, it is a very big object, and it's actually not a very big star. The sun is uh, considered just sort of an average-sized star. There are stars that are much, much bigger than the sun, and there are stars that are smaller than the sun, too, but uh, Old Sol is sort of just a run-of-the-mill average, uh, uh, average star, and uh, anyway, like we said, uh, activity pretty pretty slow right now in the sun. We'll just have to keep our eyes on it in the next couple of weeks as those those areas of high activity uh, uh, start to roll back around to the uh, the geoaffective side of the disk. Okay, uh, the Leonid meteors peaked just a couple of days ago on the 19th. Although the peak wasn't very spectacular, there weren't uh, many uh, reports of anything too exciting. Just a few uh, a few meteors per hour and. Uh, that has pretty much subsided completely. You might, you might still, we're kind of in the tail end of that right now, but you might see a couple. But the, uh, it wasn't a very, very impressive show to begin with this year, especially in our hemisphere. Um, but uh, you might get lucky and see a couple things flying around, some fireballs or some uh, shooting stars if you look up in the sky. In the next few hours, uh, Leonids are just finishing up, and that'll be, uh, that'll be done in the next day or so here. So. I just thought I'd mention that to you all. There is uh, uh, actually a, um, the Air Force has a satellite that's called the Space Surveillance Radar. Uh, and it'd be interesting to know some of the other things that they use this for, but uh, as one of the novel 
the novel projects that they do with this particular satellite. They monitor the skies above uh, parts of the United States. I think it's the southern part of the U.S. And uh, when a meteor streaks overhead, it, uh, re- it, re- it records. Uh, it basically records it. And I guess it would do the same thing with anything else that might fly overhead. So, uh, in hindsight, as I think about this, I'd like to I'd like to know a little bit more about the U.S. Air Force space surveillance radar because they probably have some interesting things on tape. I'm guessing. So, anyway, uh, what else is going on? You know, we talk about uh, potentially hazardous asteroids. Back in uh, September, we were talking about an asteroid that was called Tutatis. And uh, there was quite a bit of concern in certain circles because Tutatis is a very big rock and it came very close to planet Earth. And if it uh, came too close and actually hit the Earth, it would cause big, big troubles. So uh, uh, we like to watch these sorts of things. And there hasn't been, uh, at least officially, there haven't been any new ones uh, posted for quite a while. That's why I haven't been talking too much about it. But uh, there's a few new ones on the web uh, posted by, the, um, uh, by NASA and uh, JPL. And uh, November, uh, I take that back, December 8th, um, there is an asteroid called 2004RZ-164. And December 24th, there's another uh, another rock that's coming pretty close, within about five lunar distances. And a lunar distance is about 250,000 miles. Uh, we call a lunar distance... Um, it's basically just the distance between the Earth, the average distance between the Earth and the Moon. We call that a lunar distance, and it's abbreviated LD sometimes in uh, astrophysical speak and in the astrophysical community. But in any case, um, uh, that one coming about uh, five lunar distances within the Earth, so cosmically speaking, that's not very far at all. That's very close. So, uh, so all of these. Um, uh, these asteroids that I'm talking about have just been discovered this year. There were actually two other ones, uh, 2004 TP1 and 2004 UE, which uh, flew by earlier this month in November, one November 2nd and the other one on November 9th. And it's always funny to me because uh, they talk about uh, that there are X amount of known discovered potentially hazardous asteroids but they're discovering them all the time for example those two that whizzed by us on um, November 2nd and November 9th respectively uh, those that was the first time they were discovered and we we always hear about those after the fact there'll be a little story in the back of the newspaper or BBC or someone will say hey a couple days ago a two mile wide asteroid Passed within 100,000 miles of the planet. Now, that's actually very close. They usually don't say that. If they say that, I get real nervous. But in any case, they say uh, things like that, and uh, but we don't know about it till after the fact. So there's really no way of knowing how many Earth-crossing asteroids there are out there. Uh, asteroids that whose orbits intersect with the orbit of the Earth. And uh, if those orbits are in synchronization, the two bodies can meet. And when that happens, we have an impact, uh, an impact scenario. And uh, those are usually not pleasant for the people that are living on Earth when they happen. And they've happened many, many times in the history of this planet. The Earth is peppered with craters and holes and 
evidence of meteors and comets and big rocks hitting the planet for millions and millions of years, if you actually stripped away the vegetation that covers the top of the earth and if you sucked all the water off and just looked at the uh, um, looked at the sort of the uh, the earth itself without any of the surface coverings what you would see is something that looked more like the moon uh, than the earth you would see a rock a big ball that had all kinds of crater marks on it and uh, all kinds of uh, cracks and it would look like uh, something that had been beat up pretty well, and that's because it has. The Earth is no different than any other planetary object, and it is subject to uh, cosmic interaction with other cosmic bodies, interlopers, comets, and asteroids, and meteors, and these sorts of things. And so, over time, they do uh, hit the Earth, and sometimes they have great... Uh, consequences and other times they they don't there are lots of uh, lots of different levels of these things of course so anyway potentially hazardous asteroids are always flying around out there and um, you know you just never know we live on the edge of a razor blade we really don't like to talk about it too much or think about it too much but we really do the um, the solar system and the galaxy and the universe are very dynamic places and wild things happen in them all the time and every day that something uh, every day that goes by where we uh, where we where we don't experience one of those things well those days are gifts those days are gifts and and uh, because you never know when that cosmic interloper is gonna cross your path and come a little bit too close and when that happens Hmm, well, then, uh, then it's time to reevaluate things. <laughs> Take things back to, uh, back to ground zero, no pun intended. Meet the Flintstones. All right, uh, I want to mention one other thing before we, uh, play a little bit more music. I, uh, when Kent was on the air last week, he mentioned that there was quite a bit of concern about the International Space Station, which is in orbit right now and has a, couple of uh, astronauts, a Russian and a U.S. Uh, uh, astronaut on board right now. And uh, we talked about the fact that the increased solar activity that we've seen over the last few weeks has uh, had an effect on the upper atmosphere of the Earth and the magnetic field of the Earth. And when we see increased uh, solar activity in certain cases, that has the effect of compressing, so to speak, the atmosphere of the Earth. And it uh, raises the degree of density of the atmosphere. And when that happens, things that are flying around out there, like the International Space Station, that are still within uh, the outer bounds of the Earth's atmosphere, well, the drag upon those objects becomes greater. And when the drag is greater, they require more inertia to maintain the same orbit. And uh, what's happened is that the International Space Station, or ISIS, as it's sort of nicknamed, uh, ISIS has lost about eight miles, or I take that back, about eight kilometers, that's about six miles, five and a half miles, uh, of altitude over the last couple weeks. And there was actually an attempt with a, uh, with a rocket 
And it was very quiet. They didn't talk about this. It wasn't in the news. Uh, you had to look for it and be following this story uh, if you wanted to know about it. But uh, uh, there was a, um, a Russian spacecraft that uh, was called Progress that uh, went up there in the last week and uh, tried to uh, help the International Space Station regain the original orbit that they want it to be in. And it was unsuccessful. And I'm going to read that story for you real fast. There's a couple interesting stories from the Moscow Times that I'm going to read, but uh, we'll do this one first, then we'll play a little music, and then we'll come back and do a few other things, okay? Anyway, I want to do a follow-up uh, because um, we had talked about the International Space Station losing altitude last week, and that is a, a situation that is not sustainable. Uh, so they will have to resolve it one way or the other, and uh, apparently this first attempt to resolve it was unsuccessful. So here's the story. Uh, from the Moscow Times. Russian spacecraft fails to raise International Space Station to designated orbit. The Russian transport spacecraft Progress failed to raise the International Space Station to its designated orbit on Wednesday, the ETAR TASS news agency quoted the top Russian space expert as saying. The head of the ballistic coordination group at the Mission Control Center outside of Moscow, Alexander Kiryev, said that the thrust generated by Progress's M50 engines had not been sufficient to raise the ISS by the almost 4.5 kilometers which they had planned. According to telemetric data, the orbit was raised only 2.7 kilometers. According to Dr. Uh, Kiryev, this is enough to enable the docking of the transport ship. The ISS is now at a medium altitude of 358 kilometers. According to Russian Mission Control Center, ISIS has fallen by almost 8 kilometers since the previous orbit adjustment at the end of September. Specialists have said increased solar activity is to blame. So there's the story from the Moscow Times, and it was a, kind of a tough story to find. Uh, but they are definitely uh, working on getting the International Space Station back up in its orbit where they want it to be. Uh, it's a concern, certainly, for uh, the uh, agencies and the officials that work in the, um, in the space agencies, both in NASA and uh, in the Soviet program, or the Russian program, I should say. Okay. Uh, well, a couple other things out of the Moscow Times as well, but I think we'll... Um, We'll play a little music here. This is maybe fitting. This is called Recovering the Satellites, Counting Crows, Radio Orbit, KOPN. There we go. That's better. Enjoy it. KOPN, Radio Orbit. Back in a minute. Gonna get back to basic. I guess I'll start it up again. Time commitment 
Counting Crows uh, title track from Recovering the Satellites. That's the same song. With a song of the same name. This is Mike Hagan. It's Radio Orbit, KOPN. It's about 10 minutes till 3 o'clock. And uh, chilling out with you on a early Sunday morning. 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. every week on KOPN Radio Orbit. I come to you and bring you as much interesting information as I can do. Open lines tonight. If anybody would like to uh, give me a call and talk about anything that's on your mind, call me at area code 573-443-8255. And uh, I'll kind of open the lines now and leave them that way for the rest of the night. And you can jump in anytime you like. And I'd be glad to talk to you. It's a good time to uh, give me some input on what you think of the program and uh, maybe some question or comment or concern or an idea for a future program or something like that. Anything. Also, got a couple things to give away. If uh, I don't even know what, but I've got a bunch of stuff. I got a, I've got some real cool. I got a cool uh, Fate Magazine T-shirt. I've got a. Um, CD-ROM of the entire archives of cyberspaceorbit.com. I have, hmm, uh, I don't know. I got a couple books probably. I have some. <laughs> I have some trading cards that are pretty cool. Actually, those Fate Magazine trading cards. Believe it or not, they're really funky, but they'll probably be a uh, uh, a collector's uh, collector's item someday. Anyway, they're like they're base they're they're just like baseball trading cards or something like that, uh, but they have covers of um, all of the old uh, covers uh, images from the covers of Fate magazine from all of these years. And Fate magazine has been publishing for 56 years, uh, which is longer than any other uh, magazine in that genre. And uh, Phyllis Galdi is, of course, the publisher and the owner of Fate Magazine. She's a friend of mine, and she gives me some of these things once in a while to give away to you guys, so I'll do that uh, if somebody calls. Actually, if you want that stuff, um, you'll have to call on the studio line. That's area code 573-874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676 if you want a Fate Magazine T-shirt or uh, that uh, CD-ROM from Kent Stedman or... Or something else. So, anyway, give me a call if you're interested in that. It is uh, time to talk a little bit more about something in the Moscow Times. I told you there were a couple stories from there that I wanted to cover. The first one was about the International Space Station. And we mentioned how there's some concern about the uh, orbit of the space station. This is a different story, but from the same newspaper. And it says, Russia to launch satellite to communicate with aliens. And uh, let me read this to you here. Again, this is from the Moscow Times. Experts have developed new panels that will allow people to send messages into space where they can be intercepted by interstellar civilizations. The new generation satellite, the GLONASS-M, is set to be launched on December 25th with six initial informational panels. Russians will be able to send their space ads for free, but the company will determine which ones they accept. So apparently this is a private project. 
The Krasnoyarsk satellite company that created the new panels said they had come up with a new way to make use of the satellites, apart from their primary function. Satellites can be used as interstellar, interstellar postmen, the ETERTAS news agency reported. The satellite will orbit at a distance of 20,000 kilometers and can theoretically remain in space forever. Information in the form of drawings or script can be placed on special aluminum sheets with an area of 12 centimeters by 26 centimeters square. Six panels with information about the company that developed them and its founder, Mikhail Rasheknev, have already been installed on the GLONASS-M that is set to be launched next month. The company is already accepting applications for messages to be sent along with the next satellite launch, which is scheduled for 2005. Utah Task quoted a source in the company as saying, Not all messages will automatically be sent, however. The priority will lie with information about the planet Earth and its civilization, the activities or enterprises uh, and enterprises of people involved in developing space technology. This is the kind of thing that interstellar civilizations may be interested in, the source said. So pretty cool stuff there. The Russians thinking forward a little bit, uh, sending up a, a probe, uh, uh, or satellites that are now capable of sending messages out to other civilizations, anybody that might be listening to us out there or uh, looking for us. And there's sort of a long history of that. You know, we have the Voyager spacecraft and the Pioneer spacecraft that are, uh, that are cruising now outside of the galaxy. Pioneers actually left, uh, uh, not the galaxy, I take that back, but they've left the solar system and uh, still transmitting data. And, you know, I mentioned uh, Dr. Paul LaViolette, or LaViolette. It's funny because we had this uh, discussion off the air about uh, the, pronunci- the pronunciation of his name. And uh, my, in- my intuition said that it was LaViolette. It's spelled L-A-V-I-O-L-E-T-T-E. And then I heard an old interview with him and another uh, guy, and that guy called him LaViolette during the entire interview and I was thinking well the other, that guy the guy couldn't be calling him the wrong name pronouncing it wrong the entire interview uh, so I guessed that uh, it must have been LaViolette and that my original idea of LaViolette was incorrect so when I talked to uh, Paul the first time I asked him about it because then I, I, had, I had sort of changed it in my mind was now thinking LaViolette and he's like no your, 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 intuition, your intuition was correct so of course uh, then during the interview, I couldn't get it straight. At times, I'd call him LaViolette, and other times, I'd call him LaViolette because I had screwed it up in my own mind. So, anyway, uh, Dr. LaViolette, or LaViolette, uh, is uh, one of the things that uh, he is having difficulty with is a, uh, <clears throat> a scientific phenomenon that's called the Pioneer Effect. Um, the Pioneer Effect has to do with the radio signal the maser signal that's being sent from the Pioneer spacecraft uh, back to JPL here on planet Earth. And uh, this is the signal that Pioneer is still using to communicate with the Earth, sending data. And uh, as that spacecraft moves through the solar system and then outside of the solar system and is now uh, moving away from our solar system, the uh, signal from the spacecraft is not where it should be. It's not where it was predicted to be in the spectrum. It's actually, actually uh, blue-shifted. 
and uh, in oh, let's see, let's uh, we'll have to we'll have to talk about this uh, one of these nights about red shift and blue shift. But uh, the bottom line is that uh, in conventional astrophysics, the idea of a red shift means that if you're observing something, a star or a planet or a galaxy or whatever, and the light from that particular object or galaxy or whatever is shifted toward the red end of the spectrum, while conventional physics has said that that's a signal that that galaxy or that star or whatever is moving away from planet Earth. Uh, Conversely, if it shifted toward the blue end of the spectrum, it would be considered that it was moving toward the Earth or gaining strength, or you could kind of look at it like that, gaining strength or losing strength. So anyway, the pioneer, what, 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 is, what has eventually been come, uh, come to be known as the pioneer effect is this idea that uh, um, the signal from the pioneer spacecraft is not where it should be. It's actually shifted to the blue. And this is something that Dr. Paul Laviolette predicted with one of his theories actually in 1979, and it was actually published in 1985. Um, and it has to do with a, an idea of, uh, called tired light and um, he has a completely different model, uh, a unified model for, uh, um, uh, for physics and astrophysics. It's actually uh, uh, called subquantum kinetics, and it has received much, much attention uh, in the past, but uh, now it's one of these things that's being swept under the rug and hidden in the closet again because the implications of it are too astounding and the, and the, uh, uh, the establishment uh, is so... Uh, averse to change and uh, the guys that are running the current paradigm are very happy with it the way it is and they don't want to they don't want to give up their positions of power and their uh, and admit that their theories that they've been promoting for their whole careers are incorrect and this is what I was talking about earlier is that it's the nature of science is that it's reluctant to change because in order to bring about a new paradigm you basically have to say the old paradigm was wrong and people don't like to be told that, especially professionals who have lots of uh, lots of letters at the ends of their names. They don't like to be told that their that their work is incorrect. But see, that's not the thing. It's their work contributed to what we're learning now, and that's what that's what science is about. And these guys shouldn't be uh, getting all tied up in their egos. It's that's what the work is all about. We're never going to have all the answers. We cannot have the answers. This is, the, you know, in my opinion, the question of God. You know, the more you look, the more you find. The more you look, the more you find. And that's exactly what's happening. And uh, uh, it's happening in science. And now this linear idea of science is, is opening these nonlinear doorways, and it's just freaking people out, and they can't handle it. So what do they do? They try to ignore it. Uh, but in any case, um, the pioneer effect is something that has been admitted uh, to now in uh, the astrophysics community. However, Dr. LaViolette and his theories, or LaViolette, um, have not been acknowledged, even though he was the guy that predicted it long ago, long before they even acknowledged that it existed. He said that this was a phenomenon that you would see long before we actually saw it, and he actually measured it. He gave a number. This is, uh, you know, this is the uh, this is the percentage that we'll, that, that we should uh, that we should see, and he was within uh, 
two standard deviations of what 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 would the the observable effect actually was when it was discovered in like 1992. So anyway, Laviolette is all over this stuff, and his theories explain a lot of these things. And uh, unfortunately, there are people that just don't want it to be explained, at least not to not in a new and uh, more comprehensive manner than it's been explained in the past. So anyway, we will be talking about that w with uh, Dr. Laviolette uh, when we have that uh, interview on the air in a few weeks here. So, okay, uh, what else did I want to talk about? All right, one more story from the Moscow Times. Uh, so interesting, the Moscow, uh, Moscow Times reporting that the Russian space agency is launching satellites that are trying to co uh, communicate with, uh, with aliens, uh, alien civilizations. All right. So, and uh, what originally got me off on the rant about uh, uh, Pioneer is that uh, both Pioneer and Voyager, if I remember correctly, are both uh, outfitted with uh, some type of message to whoever or whatever might come across those two or three spacecraft as they meander through the. Uh, through the space between here and where else, you know. So anyway, pretty cool stuff, and it'd be interesting to find out what uh, if somebody ever rules across those. You know, I think about the radio as well. The uh, radio waves travel. It's actually a light wave. So they move at the speed of light, and uh, they travel outside of the Earth's atmosphere. These are all these waves don't really have boundaries they just keep going and going and going and they may lose strength and they may gain strength and they may get oh you know mutated and squeezed and stretched and all kinds of things like that but the bottom line is the wave exists and it's out there traveling and um you know you just never know who might be listening <laughs> so interesting stuff so you got to be careful what you say as well you got to be careful what you say People would say that I'm not very careful with what I say, but I think I'm actually very careful. And anyway, I, I, anyway, uh, one more story from the Moscow Times. I digress. At any rate, Russians uh, are developing a space engine that does not need fuel. One more story from the Moscow Times. Russian. Ex oh, hey, uh, let me do this quick. KLPN 89.5 FM. This is for the FCC. Uh, Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It is more than radio. It's community radio. KLPN. Columbia and surrounding areas. This is Radio Orbit, and uh, I'm Mike Hagan, your host, as always, from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. on Sunday morning. Okay, uh, Russians are developing a space engine. Call me if you want, 573-443-8255, uh, and get on the air. Become a star. 15 minutes of fame. Uh, also, if you're interested in something free, call me at 576 uh, I take that back, 874-5676 or 1-800-895-KOPN, 895-5676, if you want to get on the air. Russian experts are developing a small space engine that can function for years in orbit without fuel, eliminating the need for frequent flights to replenish fuel and cutting space mission costs. Russian's Federal Space Agency Director Anatoly Permanov announced the developments in an interview published on the agency's site. He said the engine would implement some of the newest principles in physics, but was so far only in the developing stages. Hmm. I wonder what that might be. Some of the newest principles in physics. They're actually some of the oldest principles in physics. They're called electrogravitics. I'm just speculating here, but... Uh, 
That's what I think is happening here. The stuff is coming out of the closet, you guys. The stuff is coming out of the closet. I'm telling you, you heard it here first. But the anti-gravity technology is coming out of the closet. It's real. It's existed for a while. Quite a while. Go look, go look into the background of Nikola Tesla and T.T. Uh, Brown, Victor Schauberger. All right? <sighs> Asked about a projected date for a possible Mars mission, however, he said that any year could be named, but then developers would have to answer for that. Meanwhile, he added that Russian businessmen were investing in the construction of a new launch pad for the Zenith rocket carriers at Bakunur in Kazakhstan. But Permanov also expressed concern that Russia is lacking the funds for scientific development and often has to join with foreign projects just to take part in the process. That's why 80% of the results in this field are handed over to the European Space Agency, and we get only 20%, he said in the, in, in the, in the interview. Hmm, that's an interesting, uh, that, that's the end of the story there, but that's interesting. That's why 80% of the results in this field are handed over to the European Space, Space Agency, and we get only 20%. I wonder if that means exactly what it says, that the results of the experiment and stuff are not shared equally. Huh. That would be interesting if that's the case. But the Russians, regardless, are uh, doing a lot uh, with their space program. And the Russians have, uh, have, have been, you know, it, it's, it's hard uh, to really tell what's what. You know, we've had our media and uh, our institutions, of course, all during the... Um, the Cold War and during the space race in the 1950s and the 60s. Of course, always reported that we were much more advanced than the Russians and, and this and that. But uh, quite frankly, I think the technology was uh, about equal. And in fact, in some areas, the Russians were more advanced than us, I think. And, uh, and in one of, those area, one of those areas was this... Uh, um, this area of alternative ideas of propulsion, and they've been working on uh, on these different technologies for a long time. The Russians have been so. Uh, so they're talking about it out now uh, in the mainstream, even if uh, sort of um, uh, in whispers, if you know what I'm saying. So that's that. All right. We get a sip of water here, and uh, I don't know what else. I think we'll play a little music and. Come back and do some more stuff, okay? Give me a buzz uh, during this break here. I'll have about five minutes free so I can answer the phone. Sorry for you people who have been calling. I haven't been able to answer the phone while I'm on the air. So wait till uh, the uh, music starts and then call me at 874-5676 if you want some goodies. This is um, Here Today, Gone Tomorrow. Dada from Puzzle.
handsome women throwing plates, capitating their laughing gates, swirling chickens, cotton flag, out of focus, much too black coming down, shining teeth, game show suckers trying to bait, but I got a drug and I got the book and I got something better than love. How you like me now? Pretty good, going on, feeling strong. I quit my chair, blowing leaves. Telephone bills up my sleeves. Choking like a one man dust ball. Freedom of my slime ball, talking and cold. We went down. Lit up the shack. Grab me a beer out of the sack. Everybody ran over twice. Painting the walls, throwing some dice. Leaping up into the air, getting the shoes up beyond belief. They were thinking like this. Why no going first base at the sun? Put myself between the bones. Now I'm running down a drop. Now I'm running like a flaming pig. Oh, yeah. Skipping off the attitude. Old man eating all my food. Don't be kind, don't be rude. Just shake your boots and let it all get loose. Beer Can Beck from Mellow Gold, KOPN, Radio Orbit. Uh, before that, we heard Here Today, Gone Tomorrow from Dada, from Puzzle. That's what I was thinking about, about asteroids 
hitting the planet and space stations falling from the sky and this sort of thing. I was thinking, here today, gone tomorrow. So, anyway, enjoy it while you're here. And uh, I'm going to talk about something else real fast uh, with regard to the International Space Station. I, I was thinking about something, an old Hopi prophecy that I uh, was familiar with from my days back in Colorado. And uh, I dug it up, and I'm going to read it to you here. There, there's some interesting things written by the Hopi people that uh, go a long way back and uh, read, in, read in the context of today with the hindsight that we have. Uh, you can interpret them any way you like. I'll let you guys interpret them the way you want, but I'm going to read uh, the um, I'll read the prophecy here. It's not too long. And the one in particular would be the the ninth sign that they mention here, but there, uh, there are a number of them. So anyway, listen to this. Uh, this is the first sign. We are told of the coming of the white-skinned men like Pahana, but not living like Pahana men who took the land that was not theirs and men who struck their enemies with thunder. The second sign, our lands will see the coming of spinning wheels filled with voices. In his youth, my father saw this prophecy come true with his eyes, the white men bringing their families in wagons across the prairies. This is the third sign, a strange beast like a buffalo but with great long horns will overrun the land in large numbers. These white feathers saw with his eyes the coming of the white men's cattle. This is the fourth sign. The land will be crossed by snakes of iron. Of course, that is a reference to the uh, railroads, at least in my interpretation. This is the fifth sign. The land shall be crisscrossed by a giant spider's web. Hmm. Maybe the electrical grid? Maybe the internet? I don't know. The phone system? This is the sixth sign. The land shall be crisscrossed with rivers of stone that make pictures in the sun. Rivers of stone that make pictures in the sun. I'll let you think about that one. I have an idea. This is the seventh sign. You will hear of the sea turning black and that many things dying because of it. This is the eighth sign. You will see many youth who wear their hair long like my people come and join the tribal nations to learn their ways and wisdom. And this is the ninth and last sign. You will hear of a dwelling place in the heavens above the earth that shall, fall, that shall fall with a great crash. It will appear as a blue star. Very soon after this, the, cer the ceremonies of my people will cease. So then the, the ninth sign is the one that I had been thinking about when I heard uh, the story about ISIS losing altitude. And of course, just speculation but uh, something to put in to your mind and uh, and chew on a little bit I'll read that one more time listen to this this is the ninth and last sign you will hear of a dwelling place in the heavens above the earth that shall fall with a great crash it will appear as a blue star very soon after this the ceremonies of my people will cease and that's from an old pro uh, from an old Hopi prophecy and uh, you can uh, get on the web and go find some of that stuff if you want if you're interested in information about this stuff uh, you can email me in fact I should probably do that give out the uh, email information and the 
website address, so now's a good time to do that. Uh, always email me at orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com. Orbitradio at AOL.com. I uh, read all the emails and respond to most of them, so send me a note if you like. You can also uh, send me a note directly from the website. The website is www.radioorbit.com with a shared O in the middle, only one O at the end uh, of radio and at the beginning of orbit. So Radio Orbit, R-A-R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com. And uh, you can always uh, go there and check out the old programs. I archive all the old interviews and all the, all the past programs up there on the web. So people who aren't uh, up and about at 2 o'clock and 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the morning can, uh, can enjoy the radio program anytime they like from the archives on the web. Okay, So check that out. And again, the phone number here, if you'd like to get on the air, we've got uh, open lines tonight. 573-443-8255 and if you're interested in a Fate Magazine t-shirt or uh, I don't know, I got some other things to give away give me a call in the studio at uh, 573-874-5676 alright ok, uh, what else what else did I want to talk about alright, so we talked about that Hopi prophecy a little bit that's kind of interesting I thought so I thought I'd share that with you. Uh, here's a good one. Top scientist. Is all is life all just a dream? A top scientist asked, is life just a dream? This is uh, from the uh, science editor over at CNN, I think. Jonathan Leake. He's either there or at, or, or, or at the New Scientist magazine. I forget. Anyway, these stories bounce around. Somebody writes and then they get picked up by this agency in that one. Anyway, so uh, listen to this. Deep Thought, the supercomputer created by novelist Douglas Adams, got there first, but now the, uh, the astronomer uh, Royal has caught up. Professor Sir Martin Rees, he's an uh, English astronomer, is to suggest that life, the universe, and everything we know may be no more than a giant computer simulation with humans reduced to bits of software. Reese, Royal Society Professor of Astronomy at Cambridge University, will say that it is now possible to conceive of computers so powerful that they could build an entire virtual universe. Wow. The possibility that what we see around us may not actually exist has been raised by philosophers many times dating back to the ancient Greeks and appears repeatedly in science fiction. However, many scientists have always been dismissive, saying the universe was far too complex and consistent to be a simulation. Despite this, the idea has persisted, popularized by films such as Tom Cruise's Vanilla Sky and, uh, of course, The Matrix with Keanu Reeves. It was also the basis for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, written by Adams, who died in the year 2001. In the book Deep Thought, uh, he creates uh, the Earth and its human inhabitants as a giant calculating device to answer the ultimate question. The BBC's rerun of the radio version of Hitchhiker... Um, uh, just uh, just finished recently, and just as Reese was putting together his contribution to the debate, in which he will concede that the depictions by Adams, Cruz, and Reeves might actually have been right after all. Uh, 
In a television documentary, what we still don't know, to be screened on Channel 4 next month, he will say, over a few decades, computers have evolved from being able to simulate only very simple patterns to being able to create virtual worlds with a lot of detail. If that trend continues, then we can imagine computers that will be able to simulate worlds, perhaps, even as complicated as the one we think we're living in. This raises the philosophical question, could we ourselves be in such a simulation? And could what... and and could what we think is the universe be some sort of vault of heaven rather than the real thing? In a sense, we could be ourselves the creations within the simulation. Reese will emphasize that this is just a theory, but it is being increasingly discussed by other eminent physicists and cosmologists. So, yeah, is life just a dream? Who knows? You know, good question. Finally, scientists are starting to ask questions that are sort of mystical in nature, you know, because we really don't know. You know, it's just sort of a technological way to explain God, I guess. You know, God is whoever the architect of this big computer in which we are the simulation. Uh, I suppose that would then be interpreted as God. But what about them? Who created them? You know? So it goes on and on and on, and uh, the universe... Whether it's a simulation or not is an amazing place. And whether we're simulations or real or not, uh, we sure think we are. And I guess uh, I think, therefore, I am, you know. So I think that's a simple answer to that one. And it's not the first time this has been, uh, this has been talked about. This is no news. It's been talked about, as the story sort of points out, for many, many years. Over the, over the eons, philosophers and physicists have argued about these sorts of things forever and uh, really not a new story but interesting that they're uh, uh, they talk about it at the Royal Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge one of the most uh, uh, authoritative and most respected astronomical institutions on the planet talking about stuff like this so Anyway, pretty cool, pretty interesting stuff. I like to hear him at least talking about it. So, all right, uh, let's see. I don't know, man. Feeling a little bit mystical myself, so I think we'll play a little. This is the Doors, waiting for the sun. And don't kid yourselves. That's what we're all doing.
Marcy Playground. That's called Opium from the album Marcy Playground. And we heard uh, Waiting for the Sun from 1969 by the Doors. Before that, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN 89.5 FM. And uh, we're just chilling on a Saturday night, Sunday morning. I'm talking about lots of different stuff. And um, next week, William Lyon. I'll be bringing an interview I did with William Lyon talking about anti-gravity technology and a little bit about the history of it and uh, talk a lot about UFOs and whether UFOs are really alien craft or if they're actually man-made objects and uh, they're just secret. And uh, there is some evidence that at least some of them are that. And as I talked about a little bit earlier toward the beginning of the program, a lot of that technology and a lot of that research and uh, history goes back to uh, pre-World War II Germany and uh, pre-World War One actually, in the United States here uh, with work that was being done by Nikola Tesla, T.T. Brown, uh, and others. Victor Schauberger in Germany. Werner von Braun eventually took that over. A Dr. Lay, who uh, came over here from Germany prior to Werner von Braun. Oh, boy. Anyway, what a tangled web. What a tangled web all of this stuff is. Uh, but anyway, William Lyon will be talking about this technology, and he seems to uh, uh, think that he knows a lot about that. And we will let him air his opinion and if you guys disagree or agree because some of the stuff that he's going to be talking about is going to be very disagreeable to uh, mainstream physicists or at least some of them uh, some of them are starting to think a little bit differently and um, the ideas of uh, Dr. Paul LaViolette as we were talking about earlier one of those guys and this is uh, you know he's the reason guys like LaViolette are such a problem and the reason that they're the ones that get censored... See, a guy like William Lyne, this guy, he knows a lot about it, perhaps, but he doesn't have any, uh, he doesn't have any credentials, so he's easy to laugh off. Uh, and it doesn't matter if he writes books or whatever, which he does, but he doesn't have a Ph.D. from, uh, you know, here or there, and he doesn't have credentials in the scientific community. He doesn't have, uh, you know, he hasn't worked for JPL and NASA or these sorts of things, right? So when a guy like him starts talking about anti-gravity technology and the fact that it's existed for 85 years since Nikola Tesla uh, developed in the early 1900s, if he's talking about stuff like this, well, he's easily laughed off. He's easily debunked. Um, And uh, that's been proven many, many times over the years. Uh, So that's not a problem. That's why guys like him go go about their business and for the most part don't get a whole lot of trouble in my opinion the problem with guys like La Violette is that they are totally accredited scientists you know La Violette comes from the mainstream institutionalized establishment he went to all the right schools he's got all the right letters at the end of his name and uh, guys like him really rock the boat, man, because uh, because they're not as easily debunked. 
So what you do with guys like him is you basically just uh, um, you blacklist him. You don't publish any of his material, and you don't let him post to the archives, to the peer-reviewed archives that are run by publicly funded taxpayer money, the National Science Foundation. Used to be run from uh, Los Alamos, interesting uh, place where they used to run the archive, the physics archive. Um, but uh, now it's run out of Cornell University. And uh, Dr. LaViolette has, uh, has been barred from posting to the, uh, to the web archive. And this is uh, about stuff that is very valid, uh, very valid right now, very relevant, very important. The implications of the stuff that he's talking about uh, are free energy. You know, we're talking about a solution to the energy problems of not only this country, but eventually the world, probably. And uh, this is not pie-in-the-sky stuff, okay? This is real stuff that we're talking about. Just wait till you hear this, this interview with Dr. LaViolette. You're not going to believe it, all right? Uh, it's incredible. And he's not the only one. He's not the only, only one. There are many scientists that are in the same boat as him, doing their best to get out this new information and get more people involved in working on it. Implementation is the issue, right? Once the, once the theories are validated and, and, uh, uh, and, and work, then it's just a matter of implementation. And, you know, you can revive the economy. You can, you know, it's a whole new, it's a whole new world opens up when you start talking about new, alternative, unlimited, free, clean energy. That's what we're talking about here. And uh, there certainly there are other things that come with that, you know, this idea of uh, propulsion and uh, being able to affect gravitational fields, which means that we can do all kinds of things. So the implications of these things are enormous. But the groundswell required to push it over the tipping point and get the mainstream establishment institutions to accept it and to talk about it openly and to bring it into a new paradigm. And there are also, you know, geopolitical interests involved. There are uh, corporate interests involved. There are all, you know, it's a very complicated thing. You know, energy is what runs this planet. And the people that control the energy control the planet. And petroleum in particular is, requ is required for almost everything. Just look around you. And anything that you see that's made out of plastic that came from petroleum, any, uh, any fuel that's used for locomotion came from primarily petroleum products. Most of the electricity in this country comes from some sort of natural gas or petroleum product. Uh, there's some coal burning, I guess, and there's some nuclear energy, but uh, for the most part, uh, they're creating energy by burning fossil fuels, gases, and petroleum products. Pharmaceutical products, all those pills that everybody pops, the legal ones. That's a whole other story. Go listen to my interview with Dennis McKenna if you want to hear about drugs and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. 
but what a double standard we have in that in that realm. Anyway, the pharmaceutical companies, all that stuff is petroleum based. Those pills, they're they're petroleum based. Okay, um, heating your home, cooling your home, all these things, they're all petroleum based. So if you bring in some sort of technology that eliminates the need for petroleum, well, it's the end of the oil age, and it's also the end of the guys that run the oil industry. Because what happens is, if energy becomes free, then it no longer becomes something that can be sold. And if you can't sell it, well, then you can't use it as a control mechanism. And that is, in my opinion, right now in the current uh, in the current atmosphere of our country, that's not something that is desirable. There is a a wave of the action, the, the absolute opposite of that happening right now, where we're we're trying to be. Uh, um, to exercise the rights that have been given to us by the Constitution of the United States of America and by the Creator himself or herself. And these rights are trying to be controlled and eliminated and uh, more and more by the government. Look at uh, Just look at the legislation that's come down in the last three years since 9-11. Uh, it is very aggressive and very... Um, disrespectful of the Constitution of the United States of America and the Bill of Rights in particular. So these ideas of freedom are talked about a lot and bandied about a lot, but true freedom means not being dependent upon anybody. And the way you get that fundamentally the root of all of it is energy. And if you've got energy and a means of generating your own energy, free and clean and safe, well, my friend, the world just changed because now you can do whatever you want. You can heat your home. You can cool your home. You can build things. You can make music. You can... Um, you can have your own radio show. Why not? You've got energy. You've got power. You can do whatever you want. There's a reason they call it power. Okay? So these are things that we're talking about, and they're paradigm-changing things. And that's why they're so difficult to get pushed over the edge. Uh, but it's also why they need support and why uh, the guys that are on the front edge of this stuff, the leading edge trying to push the envelope and to bring us into these new ideas and these new paradigms, they're the ones that we have to be supporting. And they're the ones who we have to be uh, talking about. Guys like Dr. Paul LaViolette, who's not even on the radar for most people because, well, it's just the way things are. And uh, I'm not going to... You know, argue it. Why? The fact is, he's not on the radar for most people. But he's talking about, and 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 I don't just. Uh, he's 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 a great example of this. Uh, but I don't want to say that he's the only guy, right? Uh, but he's a great example of it. 
and uh, that, that, that that's what's happening right now. And there's a lot of this stuff going on, and that's what we need to be talking about. That's who we need to be supporting. And if we want to see things change, we got to look to the guys that can change it. And uh, um, unfortunately, if history has anything to show to us, it's not going to be politicians. It's going to be... Science is either going to save us or it's going to destroy us. But either way, the guys that are doing the uh, cutting-edge stuff, they're the guys that we need to be talking to. And they're the guys we need to be listening to. So so that's what we're trying to do here on Radio Orbit. And um, we'll be talking to uh, La Violette in a couple weeks, and I'll have him on the air. In the meantime, um, I want to talk about a couple other programs here. You know, since I've been here at the station... Uh, I have uh, gotten to know some of the other people that do programs here. And, you know, there's some real talented people here, and there's some great shows. And they always uh, plug my show and read my promos for me and stuff like that and try to help me get listeners here in the middle of the night. And um, I just want to say thanks and, uh, and, and mention a couple of these guys' shows. Um, one of my favorite is the so-called Good Life. That is uh, Wednesdays from 3 o'clock until 5, or is it 5 until 7? I think it's 5 until 7, or maybe it's 6. I don't know, but it's on in the late afternoon, early evening. And uh, that's uh, Kelvin Wallace, or I'm not sure if that's his real name. or Anyway, Kelvin does a great show, and he knows more about... Uh, Music than anybody I think I've ever met. Maybe the guy knows so much, especially about uh, you know um, uh, current stuff. And uh, oh, I guess you know not not just current stuff. He knows he knows a lot about everything. But anyway, Kevin's awesome, or Kelvin, and uh, uh, his show's great. Uh, the so-called Good Life. Check it out on Wednesday evenings and uh, late afternoons. I want just sometime between four and seven. Um, who else? Uh, Pat. Pat's Power Pop Hour. Or, uh, uh, Pat's Power Pop Hours is on Fridays from 6 o'clock until 8 o'clock and Pat always plays some great music and he's uh, a great uh, uh, guitarist actually too a great guitarist and uh, knows a lot about music and plays some really cool fun stuff on Friday evenings so check that out it's great like happy hour music because he's always having a lot of fun Pat is hysterical when he's here in the station he just is in the studio here jumping the studio here jumping up and down and singing and uh, he's just a riot. So, anyway, his show's great, too. It's called Pat's Power Pop Hours, and that's Friday from 6 till 8. Lots of other good stuff. My friend Angela does the smooth sounds of jazz on uh, Thursday evenings from 8 to 10. And, uh, of course, all the guys on Wednesday nights with uh, uh, Eric and Mark and Trevor uh, playing jazz and blues on Wednesday nights. Um, awesome stuff from 8 until midnight. Morgan doing Motherland Jam on Saturday afternoons, noon to 2. A great program. The Motherland Jam. You'll never hear music anywhere else uh, like you'll hear on Morgan's program. Music from all around the continent of Africa and uh, just incredible stuff. He introduced me to, uh, to some stuff uh, a couple weeks ago, and, uh, which is, well, there's... A bunch of great stuff, but uh, Thomas Marfumbo, just uh, incredible stuff. So thanks to Morgan, and thanks to all you guys for uh, uh, being around here at KOPN. The station's incredible, and things are going really well here, I think. I'm really, really uh, happy to be a part of it. So anyway, uh, we'll get back here in a minute. What am I going to do? It's uh, just about the top of the hour. I'll play something long here. Uh, long and on the deep. This is, uh, this is the cure from from disintegration it's called 
the same deep water as you. And uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. This is Mike Hagan, and I'll be back in a few minutes.
That's the cure from uh, disintegration. It's called the same deep water as you. Okay. All right. Uh, hey, uh, listen to this. I just found a story. I'm trying to come up with some things. Oh, by the way, KOPN 89.5 FM. It's 4 o'clock in the morning, just about, a little after. And uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit on 89.5 FM, Mid-Missouri Source, for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's more than radio. It's community radio, and it's KOPN. All right. Uh, the locust swarms are attacking in Israel. More signs of Armageddon in the news. This is from Haaretz, one of the uh, one of the major papers in uh, in Israel. And uh, hmm, another story there about the planes with insecticide that are trying to stop these things. But anyway, here let me get this for you. So lots of prophecy and lots of uh, uh, lots of biblical and uh, uh, and other traditional um, mythologies that talk about locusts and about um, that they're portend bad news and nasty things. So, uh, of course, as soon as we hear this story, you have people talking about Armageddon. And here's a, a little bit of it right here. Second wave of locusts advance to the southern Dead Sea. The wave of locusts that hit Israel over the weekend, it's hilarious. It actually sounds it's like, like they're talking about like a thunderstorm or something. Anyway, the wave of locusts that hit Israel over the weekend intensified Saturday evening with a fresh swarm of relatively large locusts being spotted over the southern city of Eilat and with the insects reaching as far north as the southern section of the Dead Sea. The swarms of large locusts landed on Saturday evening near Faran in the Arava region near Niyat Hakkar, uh, south of the Dead Sea, and the locusts were expected to move n- further northward on Sunday with the help of southwesterly winds. Now it sounds like we're talking about like uh, military movements and uh, troop movements. Anyway, uh, and it's kind of like that, I guess. Actually, these things, um, when uh, when when they get together in large numbers like they are right now, they can literally devastate huge areas of. Um, uh, of crops and trees and fruits and uh, all manner of things uh, uh, in the plant uh, spectrum, they just eat. They just mow things down. So, uh, so it is a uh, it's an issue when these things um, come, especially in areas that have uh, uh, short growing seasons and uh, are desert-like arid regions, so I'm sure there's a lot of concern about it. But anyway, let me continue here. Uh, however, the ex- the expected significant drop in temperature on Sunday would force the locusts to remain on the ground and would slow their their movement northward. Again, it sounds to me like we're talking about a military operation here. This would make it easier for crop dusters to exterminate them from the air. You see, this is the uh, the offensive-defensive thing. It's amazing how, how uh, everything everything we do is... Everything is these, these the idea of the zero-sum game, you know, that there has to be a winner and a loser. There has to be the locusts, and the only way to beat the locusts is to destroy the locusts, or the, the locusts will destroy your stuff or whatever. And it's just amazing to me that uh, regardless of, of, of what 
um, what area we talk about, it's always the same thing. You know, you see it on Sunday afternoon on the television. Sports are all zero-sum games. You always have a winner and a loser. And in fact, in sports, if you don't have a winner and a loser, people get really pissed off. It used to be, uh, like in college football, you used to have a tie. If there was a tie at the end of the game, well, it was a tie, and it went in the column as a tie. Um, but now, no way, man, no tie. You play it out and uh, have overtime and these sorts of things, and because you have to have a winner and a loser. And we see it in politics. We have a winner and a loser. We see it in the war and uh, rumors of war that we see everywhere. Um, winners and losers. And I guess it's just sort of that whole idea of the duality of, of the world that we live in, but the whole idea is obviously to, uh, to bridge those dualities and... Um, then you can come up with solutions. So, anyway, they're fighting the locusts in Israel. And uh, the Agriculture Ministry stated, however, that it wasn't clear whether the new swarms of locusts might move further north in Israel or carry on into Jordan. Yeah, I guess they have to find out if they've made an agreement with the Jordanian government to come across the border and uh, cooperate with the terrorist organizations out of, uh, uh, out of that country. So... Anyway, crazy stuff, and uh, like we don't have enough to worry about. We got locusts now flying and attacking everybody in the Middle East. So I'm sure pretty soon they will uh, they'll unleash nuclear locust weapons to destroy these huge uh, these huge swarms of locusts. You know, it's crazy. I, uh, I'm I'm getting ranting and raving now, but when the hurricanes were all uh, bearing down on Florida earlier this year in September. Um, I remembered a story from the year before, actually, uh, when Isabel, the uh, giant hurricane that had a freaking pen pentagram inside the eye, which we know now was uh, being affected by scalar technology. It's the only way that geometry shows up in nature. It doesn't show up in nature. Uh, so when I see a, a hurricane with a clearly scribed pentagram in the eye, uh, I know I now know that there's probably something strange going on there so anyway um the uh i don't even remember what the hell i was talking about but <laughs> but but the fact the fact that uh all these all these things are going on oh you know what it was is that they were talking about dropping nuclear weapons into the eyes of hurricanes in order to dissipate them that was actually on-the-table discussion at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So the idea of bombing everything into submission is one that is just overwhelming right now, and it is just pervasive throughout the entire uh, culture. It's like, you know, I mean, we're even, we're, we're even going to try to take out hurricanes now with weaponry, you know, and who knows what the effects of these things are? You know, it's this 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 whole shoot first and ask questions later is a really uh, juvenile way to act, and it's we've we've gotten away with it for a long time. Um, we've gotten away with it because the technology that's been at our fingertips up until recently hasn't been significant enough 
to cause global devastation. Back in the old days, sure, there were fighting and stuff going on ever since the, the dawn of man, you know, since the first water hole. Uh, and you had apes on one side and other apes on the other side, and they were fighting over the water. And one day, one ape figured out that he could actually use a stick to club the other ape. And when he did that, well, now his group got the water. And it's been like that ever since. Um, and we talk about advancement, and we have advanced technologically, but we have not advanced as far as that mentality goes. We still hit people with clubs over resources. And it's exactly what you're seeing playing out on the global geopolitical stage right now. So, in the old days, though, it was no big deal because, like I say, you just ran over the hill and clubbed the guy and took his stuff and went about your business. And then the next guy came along and whoever had the bigger club. Well, when element uranium was discovered and plutonium and the atomic age began and we learned now how to use the atom to generate energy tremendous amounts of energy well then the game changed the game changed because prior to that we didn't have this technology that was capable of destroying ourselves and uh, after that we did and it's been since about 1945 or so since we've had that nuclear technology and there are also other technologies in play now that we know about that aren't talked about very uh, um, they're not talked about they're whispered about on programs like this <laughs> and uh, in other dark corners of the internet and uh, and community radio across the nation and across the world but uh, but there are lots of different things in play and in fact nuclear technology in my opinion is sort of passe it's uh, um, 50 going, uh, going on 60 years old and uh, it certainly is much further along than people might think uh, if nothing else um, uh, if nothing else it's, it's certainly now in its fifth or sixth, sixth gen generation of development and if you know anything about uh, the development of technology over the last 50 years, just think about it. Think about what the computer has done in the last 50 years. 50 years ago, it took, it took the whole floor of a building that was thousands of square feet to house a computer that could perform the functions that you can now do on your watch the chip that's in these watches that they give away at freaking Burger King. You know, they have a little calculator in them and stuff. So now we have chips that are capable of doing incredible things in, in, uh, in computer technology. Well, all of the technology has done the same thing. And don't think that it hasn't. And there are many technologies that have been developed that are on the shelf and are sitting there waiting to be implemented or waiting to be uh, released you know to a hungry public and 
you know, the whole idea of consumerism and all this stuff comes into it because when you're selling things and when you're developing products for profit, you can't bring about the new technology until you've paid for the old technology and you've made money on the current line and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, so all this stuff gets developed and then hits the public, hits the, uh, uh, the mainstream reality many years sometimes after it's actually been developed. You know, stealth technology, uh, everybody now is very familiar with the stealth fighter, the F-117A uh, fighter, and the stealth bomber, the B-2 bomber. Uh, people talk about those now. It's just, you know, another part of our military. But in 1990, and uh, when the first Gulf War um, was underway in Iraq, deja vu, um, they, that was the first time that stealth technology was revealed to the public. It was, it was rumored about and talked about in magazines like Jane's, uh, you know, these uh, basically intelligence magazines and journals for scientific and military research. Uh, of course, and I'll plug that show. I'm going to be doing a show with Nick Cook, who's an editor uh, for Jane's Weekly, the preeminent and most prestigious military technology journal in the world. And uh, Nick Cook uh, wrote a book about uh, anti-gravity technology. Now, this is, the, this is the editor of Jane's, okay? The editor of Jane's. And if you don't know who Jane's is, well, don't get mad at me. Go find out and, uh, and look up Nick Cook, and you'll find out who this guy is. And he wrote a book about three years ago called uh, the, Search for, um, the Hunt for Zero Point. And uh, it's the history of uh, anti-gravity uh, research and technology in this country and in others. And so this stuff is coming out of the closet, like I said, and it needs to now. It needs to happen now. We have got to get out of this oil paradigm now. Because forget the environmental impact that it's having. Uh, the earth will be fine. The humans might not be, but the earth will do her thing. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's these energy resource wars that are going to be our undoing. And uh, I'll finish my thought that I had earlier. I was talking about, uh, you know, this idea that um, using these technologies is juvenile. Um, because there's no wisdom behind the use of them. And we don't have the benefit like we had in the old day of just running over the hill and hitting the guy with a club. We're now using devices and managing technology that has the capability and the very real possibility of destroying the human race or a good part of it. And a good part of our... Uh, uh, wonderful technology to go along with it. You know, that's the irony of it. The technology will destroy itself. It will destroy itself if it is not wielded with wisdom. And it is the responsibility of the scientific community to take that responsibility seriously and not shoot first and ask questions later with some of these things, you know? Because we're talking about real, real serious things. And it's the future of our species that we're talking about and lots of other species in the meantime, you know, we're wiping things out left and right. So, uh, I don't know. So we gotta grow up. 
we're right humanity is at this uh, sort of adolescence just about ready to turn 18 you know and you can now be charged as an adult and you got to start taking your actions seriously and taking responsibility for your own actions and for the actions of your fellow community members and species and governments and officials and all these guys right and uh I don't know, that's just what I think about it. Otherwise, Armageddon is going to be real. You know? It will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And regardless of your religi religious or uh, moral alignment, you know, if you propagate these trends, if you look at the curves mathematically and look at where things are heading... You need to do something different. So we need to move out of these paradigms that we're in into new ones that are more appropriate for the technology that we now wield. Because that technology can be used to save the planet. It can be used to build a paradise. Or it can be used to create hell on earth and we're sort of we're sort of balancing between those two things right now and uh, we'll have to see where it goes but don't think it's not real and uh, because these, te these technologies that are in play are real and they have uh, they have dramatic implications and dramatic consequences if they become put into use so anyway think about that this is uh, I don't know what is this ah the Afghan wigs check it out from gentlemen Radio Orbit KOPN this is Mike I'll be back in a few minutes
That's uh, Afghan Wigs, yeah. From, I think it's called Gentleman is the name of that CD, but that's good stuff. From the Afghan Wigs. And you're listening to Radio Orbit, Mike Hagan, 425 or so in the AM, sitting in the studio with my buddy Casey in the corner who just uh, stopped in to say hi and we're just talking about KOPN and about some of the shows that are on the program I was talking a little bit earlier about some of the other guys and girls that do shows here Casey actually uh, does um, uh, he's been uh, doing a couple of different shows actually sitting in doing some jazz shows and some blues shows recently and I uh, may actually sit in and do this show for me once in a while in the future I think but uh, anyway real good guy and a new guy here at the station and we are very pleased to have him around so uh, anyway we were talking about uh, the station and about how you know there's a lot of diverse different things going on here and it's cool that we all talk about each other's shows and stuff because when you do when you have a station like this that's uh, uh, and this isn't pledge drive week believe it or not I'm just uh, talking about it because I want to because it is cool uh, but there's a lot of different interests here and a lot of different expertise some of these guys know so much about these different areas of music uh, like I was saying, Kevin, man, the guy that does, uh, or Kelvin, pardon me, uh, that does uh, the so-called good life, man, he knows all kinds of stuff. And Morgan uh, with uh, the Motherland Jam on Saturday, just lots of great stuff. But um, uh, I want to add for people out there in the community, if you're interested in this stuff, if you're a local musician, if you have a local band, take advantage of the uh, the guys and girls here at the station and send your music down here come down here visit us get to know us uh, you can walk right in the station anytime you want and uh, it's a casual scene and there's a bunch of real cool people here and um, where else are you going to get an opportunity to get your music played no problem um, I played uh, some stuff from Solstice last week some live stuff uh, Casey and the guys uh, brought it down here to the station for me and I'm glad to play it uh, if you want to have a successful music scene, you got to collaborate. you got to work together, not only with other musicians, but you also have to work with the radio stations and with, uh, uh, you know, the uh, all the local organizations and events and all that stuff. So um, that's, uh, that's, that's one of the ways that these towns um, have such great success. Certain towns have great success with music, and we've seen it in Seattle, and we've seen it in... Uh, uh, Raleigh, Durham, and uh, Athens, Georgia, and we see it in different places. Uh, but the reasons that those places, uh, you know, become prominent is is because the musicians, <clears throat> pardon me, the musicians in those towns actually really collaborate together with all of these different organizations, and they don't fight with one another. They actually work together. When I was in Seattle, they, they, you, would, you, never, you never knew what was going to happen, but you'd get three or four of these bands that were incredible. You know, you'd get bands like the, the precursors of uh, Soundgarden and Pearl Jam, you know, M Mother Love Bone and Mud Honey and these sorts of bands, and they would just show up. And they'd also start playing together and mixing and matching uh, members within bands. And uh, there's actually a lot of that goes on here in Columbia. And I, I recognize it here, and I think it's really cool because I think that there's a, a great opportunity for, for, uh, uh, for musicians in this area because of that. Um, and I just want to uh, participate in that a little bit and let you guys know that, uh, that we're welcome uh, here at the station, we welcome your music and we want to uh, to help promote you guys in uh, whatever it is, whatever sort of genre it is. I'm sure we can find a place for it. Uh, of course, on my program, kind of anything goes, obviously. And uh, as long as it's kind of reasonably well produced, just bring it down here and we'll play it. Okay. 
All right. Uh, and with regard to that, I want to give a plug to uh, some friends of mine over at comomusic.com. Uh, that's a uh, bulletin board and a place that I kind of spend a little time during the days uh, just uh, uh, watching what's going on in the world. There's a little news bulletin board there and uh, just sort of some general discussion. And Anyway, also good, informu- uh, good information about uh, music and upcoming shows and uh, lots of the local bands uh, promote their shows and, um, and participate in the board, on the board over there. So uh, check that out if you get a chance, comomusic.com. And hello to uh, Heather and uh, all the other people that run the show over there. So, all right, um, what else? Well, there's a story in the news, and just a couple. You know, we had the 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 Hobbit story came out a few weeks ago. The little the little the little creatures, the little three foot high, full grown humans that were li- living on the island of uh, Florence or Florencia, off the uh, coast of Java there, the northern coast of Indonesia. <laughs> Pardon me, and um, that was a pretty interesting story. And it turns out that uh, supposedly, from an evolutionary standpoint, they're classifying these little fellows as humans. So take that as uh, as you like. But they're saying they were only about thirteen thousand years old. And that's not that old, you guys. That's just prior to the last ice age. And there's a lot of mythology and a lot of interesting stuff that talks about that time period. Um, and not just, and, and in many different traditions, you know, the Christian tradition included. If you look at the esoteric uh, writings, the uh, apocryphal writings of the Christian tradition, the books that the Bible was based on, you know, the Bible has a bibliography. Most people don't like to admit that. But, uh, you know, it was based on some other books. And uh, there have been a lot of books written over the years. And uh, many of them have incredible information in them. Are, is one of them the, uh, the end-all, be-all? I don't know. Some people seem to think so. Uh, but uh, that's your own business. In any case, um, the, uh, the little hobbit fellows were supposed to be around only like thirteen to 18,000 years ago. Now, there's another story that just came out yesterday, um, and uh, I'll read a little bit of it to you. But, I, but the question is this. What are we supposed to make of the Hobbit story in light of the one that I'm going to read to you right now? Um, archaeologists say a site in South Carolina may rewrite the history of how the Americas were settled by pushing back the date of human settlement thousands of years. But their interpretation is already igniting controversy among scientists. Wow. Go figure. Go figure. Controversy among scientists. I, I, I'm, sure it's the, I'm sure it's the one scientist that says, well, my theory's right. And then he's got to fight with a new guy who says, oh, well, my theory's right. And guess what? They're not both right. And uh, the, guy that's holding the, the guy that's holding the checkbook is probably the guy who's going to keep his tenure and his theory is probably going to advance uh, or stay where it is. So anyway, listen to this. This is classic. An, archae- an archaeologist from the University of South Carolina on Wednesday announced radiocarbon tests that dated the first human settlement in North America to 50,000 years ago, at least 25,000 years before other known human sites on the continent. Topper is the oldest radiocarbon-dated site in North America, said Albert Goodyear of the University of South Carolina Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology. If true, the find represents a revelation for scientists studying how humans migrated to the Americas. 
Now, again, there's an assumption that humans migrated here. How do they know it? Maybe they evolved here. Prove it to me. Um, right? Prove it to me. Uh, many scientists thought humans first ventured into the New World across a land bridge from present-day Russia into Alaska about 13,000 years ago. There's that 13,000-year date again I was telling you about. The uh, new discovery suggests humans may have crossed the land bridge into the Americas much earlier, possibly during an ice age and rapidly colonized the two continents. It poses some real problems trying to explain how you have people arriving in Central Asia at almost the same time as people in the eastern United States, states said Theodore Schur, an anthropology professor at the University of Pennsylvania and a curator, a curator at the school's museum. Man, if you're the curator of the museum, you are the ultimate stuff shirt, man, trust me. If the guy's the curator of the museum, I mean, he's still in Newtonian physics up to his gills and he still thinks Galileo was a criminal okay you almost have to hope for instantaneous expansion we're talking about a very rapid movement of people around the globe sure said the conclusive evidence of stone tools similar to those in Asia and uncontaminated radiocarbon dating samples are needed to verify that the topper site is actually as old as they say <laughs> of course that'll go on and on and on and on and on and they'll just debate it forever ad nauseum just like that stupid Mars meteorite that in how many years ago now, 10 years ago, you know, they, they found that meteorite in Alaska, cut it open and found some bacteriological evidence of life inside a meteorite that came from Mars. Well, we still haven't heard the end of that one. It just goes on and on. So believe what you like. The stories are there. Uh, worldwide ideas about human origins have rapidly changed and groundbreaking discoveries that humans range farther and earlier than once believed. Fossils in Indo Indonesia nearly two million years old suggest that proto-humans left their African homelands hundreds of thousand years earlier than first theorized. All right, the story goes on, but the bottom line is what the bottom line always is, is that we don't know. And uh, it's interesting stuff, sure, and it's cool to try to find out. But the idea that we know is a misconception. And when we get stuck in these ideas and stuck in these ruts, well, then we don't go anywhere and we don't learn anything. And one of the... Uh, there's a journalist uh, whose name is Scott Malone, and he's a friend of mine, and he's an Emmy Award-winning uh, producer for Frontline, which is a... Uh, television program that used to be on the um, uh, I, forget, I forget the uh, television program that it was on but uh, anyway you've all heard it, it's called Frontline and it was, a, it was a very popular show and usually talked about politics and technology and lots of different things but anyway Scott Malone uh, won two or three Emmys for Frontline did an incredible piece on uh, uh, the Kennedy assassination and uh, on um, Oswald, Lee Harvey Oswald, and the background of that gentleman, which is very interesting. <laughs> let me let me let me let me give you a, a, an idea. There's three letters. One of them C, one of them's A, and there's one in between. <laughs> um, Okay, and anyway, uh, Scott Malone told me one time, and I have a lot of respect for him because he's a he's a he's an accomplished and a well-respected investigative journalist. And there's not a lot of real good investigative journalists around anymore. Uh, most of the people that do news now do news by press release. They don't investigate. 
they take the press release from whoever it is that sent it to them and they read it on the air and they take it as news as as uh, at face value and they don't question whether what they're reading is verifiable or not and that's typical of news today and uh, it's obvious because what happens every day we find out that something that we were told how many months or years ago was utter BS why well because they do news by press release nobody investigates so you report things you make mistakes then you apologize for your mistakes and then you make more so anyway Scott Malone uh, is a uh, a great investigative journalist, and he told me one time a long time ago, he said, Mike, never marry a theory. Never marry a theory. Because as soon as you do, you're stuck. You're stuck. And you can never go past it. What if your theory's wrong? Are you omnipotent? Do you know everything? What if your theory's wrong? Well, let me tell you something. Historically, Look at the past. The theories are always wrong. We have nothing but ongoing, advancing wrong theories. We get closer to the right, perhaps, but we don't have all of the right answers. And it's impossible to, I think. It's impossible to do that, to have all the right answers. The idea is to keep looking for them. And that's the way you advance, and that's the way you learn. And it doesn't matter what area we're talking about. Don't marry a theory. So that's a piece of advice that I got uh, from a good friend of mine a long time ago, and I will pass it on to you guys. Don't marry a theory, you know? And do your own work. If something sounds like it's crazy and you don't want to believe it, well, go and look it up yourself. Find out yourself. Make a decision on your own. Don't, don't, uh, don't just take your... Uh, don't take your news as it's given to you, spoon-fed and unverified. You know, do a little bit of work yourself on things that you're interested in. And I'm not telling you what to be interested in. You know, whatever you are interested in, those things, learn what the real deal is with them, whatever they might be. Because as I was saying earlier in the program a couple hours ago, the technology is advancing so fast right now that if you're not right up on what's going on in this particular field or that particular field, well, then you're living in fantasy land because the odds are that field has gone places that you are not familiar with yet and it's changed considerably from what you knew and what you thought was right. And it doesn't matter what field we're talking about. All of them, the entire, uh, the entire realm of human endeavor, including all the bad stuff, and all the good stuff. We're developing weaponry that is unimaginable in its ability to destroy things. But we're also developing technologies and uh, uh, devices and machinery that are incredibly liberating and um, freeing for the human species. Which one of these which road are we going to take? You know? This whole thing started with locusts and Armageddon. But, you know, which road are we going to take? And I hear the sirens in the background as they go by the radio station. And I think, yeah, unfortunately, that's 
seems to be that things may get worse before they get better. Because, uh, unfortunately, we seem to be um, married to a lot of theories right now and not moving forward too much. But that can change at any moment, just like I can change things. And uh, I'm going to change something right now. This is uh, Radio Orbit KOPN, and uh, this is the Tragically Hip. This is called Pigeon Camera from Fully and Completely.
Yeah. Tragically hip on KOPN Radio Orbit. It's 4.45, and uh, in 15 minutes you can enjoy the sweet music of Carol Greenspan playing some wonderful stuff for you as she does every Sunday morning from 5 till 7 on Jewish Spectrum. She'll be here in just a few minutes, and uh, this is Mike Hagan on Radio Orbit. As always, on uh, uh, Sunday mornings from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m., and we're just finishing up here tonight. Had a fun show tonight. I was, uh, I've had a lot of interesting guests over the last few weeks, and I haven't done a show by myself, and I uh, just decided I'd take some time and play some fun music and uh, chat with you all uh, myself for a few hours because I have plenty to say, as always. So, Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, I don't know, we'll finish up with a couple things. you got uh, a few more minutes if somebody wants a... Um, uh, if you want a CD-ROM of the entire historical archive of cyberspaceorbit.com, Kent Stedman's uh, website, uh, if you're not familiar with Kent, he's um, a guru of mine, a great friend, and, an, and a shaman, and a sage in his own rights, and a wizard, and oh, I could use lots of words to describe him, but they're all really cool. And uh, anyway, Kent has been um, chronicling Lots of the stuff that we talk about on this program on his website for many years, um, going on 10 years probably now. And uh, if anybody is interested, I can um, give you a CD-ROM of uh, the entire archive of that website. It's a totally incredible thing. It's like, a, it's like the Library of Alexandria. Um, anyway, okay, so the, that number, if you're interested, 874-5676. Call me in the next uh, next. 10 minutes or so, something like that. Um, what else can we talk about? Uh, so anyway, yeah, so, so, the, so I was talking before about that uh, there's a story that humans were in North America long before they thought, and then we have the story about the hobbits before that, and it turns out that these, if, if, the, if the hobbit-type people were around 13,000 years ago, and um, we have similar humans in America 50,000 years ago, is this evolution we're talking about? What, what's going on? I mean, did, are, are these, did these, our species, you know, uh, and these other ones, they're all evolving on different, um, different timelines, and, and, but, but, but they call us all human? I mean, the whole thing is so confusing, but the crazy thing, I'm reading stories now about the little hobbit folk that says that, that it's possible that they may, that there may, they may still be alive, that there may be, they may be in the uh, in the jungles of Indonesia and in Java. I'm not kidding. I saw a story that said that. Now uh, it's speculation, of course. Um, and uh, but let me tell you this: there are certainly things on this planet that we start that we don't know about yet. Um, I'm, and I want to do a program on this uh, sometime in the future. There are uh, some pretty interesting dudes that are exploring uh, the depths of the oceans. And they are finding things down there that nobody expected to find. And it's just another one of these things. Don't marry a theory. Uh, the, 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 the life forms on this planet are incredibly diverse. And there are, you know, we hear stories all the time about species getting wiped out and deforestation and ecological disasters and this stuff is true 
Uh, there's no doubt about it that, you know, human beings are having an effect on the biosphere of the planet. Uh, the conclusions of what that means, I don't know. You know, certainly if you, if you propagate anything like that into infinity, you're going to get trouble. But, you know, it, it, who's to say if it's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or whatever? There are all these computer models and things, but we just really don't know. But um, down there on the bottom of the ocean, you know, the Marianas Trench in the uh, mid-Atlantic Ridge there in the Atlantic Ocean is 36,000 feet deep. It's over five, it's over seven miles deep. So the pressures and the conditions down there are beyond almost human anticipation, you know. But yet there are creatures that live down there. And uh, they are much different than you and I. But they're there and they're doing their thing, you know. And uh, that's the way the world is. There are these things all over the place that we don't know about, and we discover them, and then we say, oh, wow, there's a new thing. We just discovered it. And then we give it a, a Latin name <laughs> and, uh, and put it in the book, you know. But it doesn't mean that we've got everything, uh, that we've already found everything. The oceans cover 70, 71% of this planet. And we're still finding things on the land. Go down to Peru. Go down to Colombia go down to Costa Rica and uh, do what my friend Dennis McKenna did 30 years ago. Just start walking. Just start walking in the jungle. And trust me, someone will find you. You won't have to find them. They'll find you. And you know what will happen? You'll go straight down the rabbit hole. And life as you know it will change. And that's the way the world is. Uh, change is right there waiting all the time and at the same time the status quo and the consensus reality is where you live but you can move back and forth between these places easily and uh, the key is to know that they're there and to not be afraid of them uh, so there are incredible things happening on the planet and there are nasty things happening on the planet they're happening at the same time the Intensity is increasing. You can feel it. It's tangible. You can feel it. And anybody who's half awake knows it. They can feel it in their bones. It's conversation quite often now uh, in regular places, coffee houses and pizza joints. People are talking about the end of human history. You know? They're talking about it. What does it mean? Yeah. I don't know. But uh, it's stuff that, uh, that requires conversation. And it doesn't require sleep. It requires wake. So stay awake, even though it is 5 o'clock in the morning. And uh, uh, we'll continue to discuss these things on Radio Orbit uh, as the weeks roll on. I'm going to get out of here in a few minutes here. We'll put on some music, but uh, thanks very much for listening. As always, uh, this is Mike Hagan. You've been listening to Radio Orbit every Sunday, 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. Stay tuned for Jewish Spectrum and Carol Greenspan uh, coming up in just a minute. And a uh, little information to close out the show. You can always email me at orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com. 
and uh, check out the website. There's always interesting stuff there, and you can go to the archives and listen to any of these past programs if you weren't able to stay up and listen to it live. Uh, that website address is www.radioorbit.com. There's only one O in the middle there. The radio and orbit share the O, so R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T dot com. And um, check it out. Uh, we've got, well, we'll, uh, we'll be back next week with uh, William Line talking about anti-gravity technology. And... Uh, I don't know what else. We'll do space weather and the things we always do, so thanks. Stick around uh, for Carol and enjoy the rest of the weekend. This is Mike Hagan. You've been listening to Radio Orbit, and I'll be back to you next week. Take care. This is U2 from uh, Octum Baby. It's called So Cruel. I remember I have to do that. Bye.